Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 1099. In this busy holiday season, I'm glad you're still here with us. It's time to cozy up by the fire, launch that Disney Plus app, and rewatch every morsel of Star Wars lore you can get your hands on. And that's why I'm so glad to have this week's guest with me. You know him as a co-founder of Obsidian Entertainment, and more broadly, a writer on Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2, the new Jedi Fallen Order, the upcoming Dying Light 2, and a ridiculous amount of classic RPGs from Planescape Torment to my all-time favorite Divinity Original Sin to Mr. Chris Avalone. Thank you for hanging out today. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it is it is an honor to have you on the show. You are responsible for writing or co-writing just a number of, I think, games that have really stood the test of time and uh, perhaps given new takes on familiar tropes and genres. And today, we're not necessarily really talking about Jedi Fallen Order, um, you know, being the game industry, we have a couple of restrictions on us about that. But I, re- I thought it would be a great chat to just talk about Star Wars as a whole, because there are so many common themes that weave between the the movies and the shows and, of course, the games, um, and uh, as well as some kind of more general video game writing questions that I think maybe are a little more uh, relevant in the year of our Lord 2019, soon to be 2020. So, yeah, uh, Star Wars, uh, like every like every games media worker, I've had to shell out that five or six bucks to Disney and uh, buy that Disney Plus app. Have you have you taken the dive into Disney Plus yet? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, it was sort of uh, as soon as I heard it being announced, and then, I, then as soon as I heard it was the, the Mandalorian was coming out, uh, that Dave Filoni, David Filoni was involved. I'm like, you know what? I really want to check that out and see where it's going. And I, I had no idea if the series would be any good or not. But man, the first few episodes in and it's been great. Uh, my only disappointment was I uh, saw so some of the early teasers had what appeared to be IG-88. Mm-hmm. And, and and they didn't clarify that it wasn't IG-88. So that when the first episode rolled around, I'm like, oh my God, there he is. And then I saw the subtitles because I'm hearing impaired. I always turn on the subtitles and Disney Plus has great subtitles, by the way. Kudos to them. And the speaker was IG-11. I made a great angry cry <laughs> at the TV. Yeah, the, the, and I'm like, how could you do this? no so yeah that was uh that was a bit of a disappointment but his combat animations are pretty great and i i like the character for the amount of time he was he was there for but it's but it's been a great series so have you checked it out or do you like it yeah yeah i've been keeping up with it and uh you know it, it, it's those first like three episodes i think were the strongest i haven't been like terribly happy with the last two but i think you know one of the most interesting things that people have said about it is like oh well it's more like a it's it's almost like a video game you walk into an area you you get a quest, you go do it, and then like you, some wrap up conversation kind of stuff. And uh, Mandalorian so far, aside from maybe the the first and like third ish episode, has really kind of been about these like little one off mini adventures so far. And it's a shorter season; it's only like eight episodes, I think. So, uh, as as a game writer, like, do you think that 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 kind of assertion holds some weight that it's it's almost written like a video game? Um, I'm not. Uh super sure like part of me wonders if uh they're introducing certain characters as as what seems to be one shots uh in order to sort of get their 
basic introduction out of the way to build the way for like season two or season three. Cause like, I can't imagine that a number of those characters won't come back in some fashion. So I feel like it's sort of more laying the groundwork. It does feel very episodic where you can just pop in, watch an episode, have a pretty good sense of what's going on in the first five minutes. And then it has that, that wrap up. But, um, uh, maybe it's just the video games I write for, but usually, uh, we don't have the um how do i put this uh the luxury i guess is a weird way to say it even though it doesn't feel like a luxury of of not being able to be episodic like you know with like you know doing divinity original sin 2 or just about any other rpg i've worked on you have to assume that it's going to be like a, a 40 or 50 hour episode yeah <laughs> Not not something that you can wrap up with uh, within 30 minutes by any stretch of the imagination, no. Yeah, and a part of video game writing is sort of creating lures in the text, too, so you don't actually want people to feel like there's there's always a clean conclusion. You always want them to play for five more minutes or ten more minutes because they're really in, in, you know invested in what's going on, and if you've got their attention, you're hopefully keeping it. So, um, Although, you know, providing break moments is always nice. They can go to bed and sleep and say hello to their loved ones and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, talking more generally about Star Wars, uh, I, of course, having now Disney Plus at my disposal, I've uh, been rewatching like Last Jedi and Force Awakens and some of the originals as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that like, especially with Last Jedi, like so much of Star Wars movies and games uh, seem to revolve around like the regrets and the failings of our like forefathers and our teachers. And for a series that takes place in this like science fiction fantasy universe, you know, why why do you think so much of Star Wars fixates on that universe's past? Well, um, you know, thinking about it, I like I don't know if it necessarily fixates on it. I think it does provide a really good uh, sort of jumping off point for a lot of the characters, because first off, there's nothing better for the sake of tragedy and drama that something really horrible happens in the past mm-hmm. or someone you look up to or you respect has a personal failing or a flaw. And then that somehow manifests itself in the present. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting when Obi-Wan strides on, that doesn't stride on the scene, but, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, creeps out of the scene to help fight, you know, the, the Tuscan Raiders, but, but you sense there's a, there's, a, there's, there's tragedy loss and, a, and failing there, you know, that, that gets explained in the, in the prequel movies. But I think that just provides more dramatic energy and also gives the characters sort of in the present and the moment that are learning and training and becoming the new heroes and protagonists, it gives them something to sort of strive beyond. And I think last Jedi, you know, was a, was a clear, it was a clear example of that. Like I, I didn't agree with everything that was being scripted out in last Jedi, but obviously the, the failings of our mentors and teachers was a big part of that. Um, I just didn't necessarily like the way that it was, uh, it was communicated in last Jedi. Yeah. There's definitely some parts of last Jedi where I was like, eh, the, the writing's not as strong as it could be, even if the overall like themes or intention are, are like really kind of profound, but, uh, you sound like you have an extra thought on that. Yeah, the uh, the conversations that happened between mentors and Last Jedi, and I don't want to give any spoilers or anything, but the um, those conversations I thought were were really well written and touched on some subjects that were pretty like the theme of those conversations was pretty clear. The only problems I had was when it felt like um, the actions of those mentors and the failings of those characters 
didn't feel like those characters that we'd seen in the other movies. Like it felt like a divergence to the point where it really was jarring in some instances. And I'm like this, the failing of this particular teacher actually doesn't feel in keeping with his character that I've seen over a number of movies. And it doesn't. And as such, it almost takes me out of the story because it feels like it doesn't fit. And also, um, there were other elements about it where, uh, you know, not not to drill too deep in Last Jedi, because I, I, there were things about it that I, I did very much like, but like the training sequences didn't quite work for me. Like in Empire Strikes Back, like it feels like Luke like really goes through his training. Like Yoda doesn't Yoda doesn't pull any punches. Mm-hmm. But then like you know, Last Jedi, the training of Rey felt really weak and confusing and it felt like it was almost like you know happens mostly off screen in some strange way so yeah there were points like that where it just didn't quite click with me but there there, there were other things that i liked about it i think uh, kind of a, a last little point about last jedi yeah before we we don't want to dive too deeply into just specifically that part but i i think my favorite part of that was all throughout the film you see those kinds of characters uh, whether it's earned or not, they're making horrible mistakes along the way. Um, Poe is, of course, uh, going gung ho on missions and like coming back with a quarter of his his you know men and women, and uh, 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 Finn and Rose are kind of basically leading the empire back to the rebellion and kind of causing the like last climactic battle and just a lot of different parts where you think like sure the the normal hero story would be uh that they they somehow get away and save the day but no actually things continually get worse and worse because of of uh, mistakes that reasonably could have been avoided if we had had a little more patience and a little more uh trust in each other etc uh so uh, as a as a writer like you know when you're communicating uh that like hey you you're making a mistake uh whether it's the the player's mistake or just the character's mistake you know how do you how do you write something in like that to communicate that like hey you did something wrong but it still is going to pay off in some sort of narratively meaningful way uh, that's a good question um so to to go back to the example that you cited, cited with the last jedi um so i guess what was a little frustrating about this situation as you describe is i i I do like the fact that characters were making mistakes and i think that makes them more interesting as characters um the difference that was standing out to me was and again i'm going to make another empire strikes back example uh was that when luke makes a really bad mistake in empire and he's he's doing it quite clearly because his friends are being tortured and may die as a result of him not interfering. So mm-hmm. when he chooses to make that mistake, which his mentors tell him, like, don't go save your friends. <laughs> you're like, wow, which is an interesting thing for them to say. But they have reasons for it. Um, you still are at that point where like, well, Luke's a hero and Luke does want to go save his friends. So you recognize that he's jumping into things too early and obviously he suffers for it, but you can sort of see both sides of the, of the dilemma there. And in last Jedi, I couldn't always see some of the positives that were going on with those characters in a way that still made me respect them and sort of sympathize with their point of view. Um, yeah. So that, I guess that's what stood out, stood out to the, to, to those examples to me. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, aside from the obvious reason that, like, it's an open field to mine from, why do you think so many Star Wars writers really love to dig into that uh, that interim between the fall of the Republic and maybe the beginning of the New Hope? Uh, and, of course, with Mandalorian, we now have the interim between uh, the end of Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. As a storyteller, do you, like, notice common threads weaving between the stories we've gotten to see, like, Fallen Order or Rebels or various books, uh, aside from the obvious like, hey, we haven't gotten a movie set during those time periods yet. Is there something like rich and meaningful about those stretches of time as a storyteller? Uh, you know, I think uh, there's a few reasons for it. What I think is pragmatic in the sense that you still want to be able to tell a story in Star Wars that's relevant. And uh, there actually isn't a lot of room sometimes between uh, the movies, with the exception of Clone Wars um, uh, to Episode 3, where they, they really just went hog wild with Clone Wars. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's more about like, where can you find a good space of time to be able to tell a a interesting story, but yet not be uh, too anchored down by the lore that might be happening around that time. Because like, if you're trying to do a, a video game set in the Clone Wars period, there is a lot to digest to make sure that you're telling a relevant story and that it's still fitting in with the timeline of everything that's going on. So there's a, there's a pragmatic reason for it. Uh, the second reason is... Um, I will say like in the, uh, the quote unquote, the dark times between uh, episode three and four, that's a pretty interesting period just from the aspect that you have Darth Vader is sort of like, you know, the empire is one Darth, you have Darth Vader, the emperor, uh, Darth Vader is a very cool signature star Wars character. Uh, and the idea of him tracking down and, killing Jedi for the empire is that's, that's a pretty good <laughs> backdrop and overall sort of like a threat for that entire time period. And uh, yeah, I think uh, some writers have done some amazing stuff with it. Like, uh, you know, it was fun to do for, uh, for Jedi fallen order, like the, the whole oppressive, you know, you against the galaxy feeling and the whole sense of loss of sealing, you know, seeing all the Jedi, uh, you know, being wiped out and the order having fallen apart. It's, it's just a really sad, tragic you know set piece and then but when you have something like that though it's when you have a protagonist that's fighting to rise above that and triumph in such oppressive circumstances like that i think it makes their struggle more powerful too so i think that that helps uh dive a little further into that what do you what do you necessarily mean that last point there well i mean so um it, if you, if you're if you're if you're a hero in any particular setting mm -hmm. and you're not going through any sort of you know adverse circumstances you know the challenges are much less like you know everybody's on your side versus the situa situation between episode 3 and 4 where it feels like almost the entire galaxy is against you. Uh, you have very few of your comrades or your Jedi standing with you. Uh, your entire, you know, for want of a better term, religious order is being persecuted and uh, you can't show your faces anywhere. When you are a hero in that environment and you take action and you're actively trying to save people, you are doing so in a galaxy that is basically turned against you, which I think ends up making your struggle more powerful because it, you have more challenges. You have more hoops to go through in order to achieve success and you're putting yourself more at risk. And I think that makes you more of a hero and a more 
uh, interesting protagonist versus, hey, everything's sunny and, you know, go slay the dragon, but everybody else is on your side. Like it's 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 more of a struggle for the for the hero. And I think that meant the the more the more the harder the struggle, I think the better protagonist you get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. The the everybody loves an underdog kind of rule, right? Yeah. Yeah. Have you uh, have you gotten the chance to go to uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, the park in Disneyland or World? No, I have not. Have you? I have. I, I actually went for my birthday last October and uh, oh, it, it was it was uh, uh, not Martin Luther King, but uh, Christopher Columbus Day, which I did not realize before going there. So it was, of course, incredibly packed and busy, uh, <laughs> but it, 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 they do an amazing job of, of course, transporting you to to a different world. You can't see any other like Disneyland uh, landmarks. And the music is playing and there's, you know, of course, some stormtroopers walking around. And then one of the things that I really appreciated about, uh, to my understanding, I think the that world is like locked in place as after Return of the Jedi, uh, but of course, before Force Awakens. And there's like, obviously, if there's there's stormtroopers walking around, like, obviously, there's a still a, a, a existential threat to, you know, good and the Jedi and all that. Uh, but the way that they incorporate that into some of their attractions is really interesting with like the uh, the two hundred dollar build your own lightsaber workshop. It's kind of like you, you got to ask a park employee where to go because it's not advertised very well. And, <laughs> and then they'll, you know, they, they kind of usher the kids in and, you know, it's like a low lit room and you feel like, okay, I, of course I'm safe, but like, I feel like I'm in the back room, you know, doing this like wonderful ceremonial kind of thing. And then one of the kind of cooler parts is, uh, if you walk around with your lightsaber out, they give you like a little bag to like a little tubular bag to put it in. Uh, and if you take it out, one, of course, Disneyland is worried about like someone getting bashed in the face. So a stormtrooper or like a park employee will be like, hey, you should put that lightsaber back in the bag. Uh, you wouldn't want the uh, first order to question your loyalty, you know, something like that. <laughs> so it's like a little, little bit of world building there. I thought you might appreciate that. Oh, that's really nice. And, you know, uh, this might be a little too in-depth on Jedi Fallen Order, so stop me if it is, but, you know, considering your last major work, uh, if I remember correctly, in the Star Wars universe was Kodor 2, uh, Knights of the Old Republic, uh, what was it like to return to that universe and in such a different time frame? Uh, people, uh, it, it is such a vastly different era of Star Wars storytelling. Uh, did any lessons or memories uh, from your time with Kodor 2 kind of pop up in your head while you were working your way through a, a different era of Star Wars? Um, you know, I guess one thing about Star Wars is uh, a lot of the research that I'd done for uh, Knights of the Republic 2, uh, a lot of that research was basically focused on trying to identify what the overall themes of star wars is and generally those themes are pretty much true in every time period whether it's in the old republic or whether like it's in the dark times between episode three and four and it's a matter of who the major players are in each sections of the sections of that universe and sort of uh uh so it wasn't hard at all um and uh there was a great deal of material that i'd done research on that you know did take place in the uh in the, in the period for uh uh, the dark times and Jedi fallen order. So it wasn't, it wasn't too hard. And, um, 
In terms of lessons learned, I think the big difference was uh, just the perspective of the Jedi and uh, Fallen Order, because a lot of the Knights of Republic 2 was a lot of questioning about um, uh, the Jedi of the Old Republic. And there were some differences because there's a lot more known about the, the Jedi of the time period for Fallen Order. And it was actually focused more on the sense of loss or being driven away from an organization like that. I mean, some there there are some aspects to the the exiles journey in Knights of Republic two, you know, which also does, does involve the failing of numerous mentors. Um, uh, but it wasn't a huge divergence, and um, a lot of the themes of Star Wars carry through, and no matter what the time period is. So it, uh, I don't know if there were any lessons that I carried over or any particular aspects from Old Republic to the more modern era. It was more, okay, well, you know, I, I'm familiar with what Star Wars is, the, the whole space opera experience, the morality. Now, how is that morality being questioned or tested in this time period? And then we just go from there. I, I, it's funny you say that because I think that like the the most redeeming aspect of the prequel trilogy for all of its flaws is that it really does honestly kind of interrogate the the moral integrity of the Jedi Order, right? And uh, the their their slow creep towards their own version of imperialism uh of course it all comes crumbling down when you know anakin betrays the order and whatnot but uh to see to see some of those issues uh of course they're they're presented in revenge of the sith and they they come to a head but in something in in media that's set between revenge of the sith and new hope like rebels or Jedi fallen order, there's all these opportunities to have characters more deliberately ask like, Hey, uh, uh, yeah. Now that we know that like there was something wrong with the Jedi order, you know, why Uh, to ask more deliberate why questions and like, what can we do about it? Or like, is there anything to do about it? Uh, Do you have any thoughts as far as that? Yeah, you know, my uh, um, usual perspective was, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying in the sense that I thought that the prequels presented an interesting question and that um, it actually portrayed the Republic as being flawed, the, the government, um, the government is weak, uh, it's, you know, feeding on itself. Uh, and then there's obviously the question that really comes to the four in episode two of the Clone Wars as to, you know, how involved should the Jedi be in the war? Um, you know, versus, you know, if they'd stayed out of it, which, you know, could have actually made things much, much worse. But, you know, should they be on the battlefield? Should they be these generals? Should they be more militaristic in their their approach? Um, and I, the big question I always had, which I hadn't done enough research on, is it all sort of boils down to me in terms of how long Palpatine had been uh, manipulating the government, because if he'd been doing that ever since like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, and he'd actively contributed to the erosion of both things, then I think that the moral question becomes less murky. Uh, I think it's more interesting if the Republic simply was not a functioning system and the Jedi 
did end up making the wrong decision or a very unclear moral decision about going to work. So I think that when it raises questions like that, like it, it leads to interesting discussions. And I think also, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, I think when you do, when you go away from a movie or media and you, and you're still thinking about the topics and the struggles within it about who exactly, you know, was in the right in this particular fictional situation. I think that uh, the, the media has done a good job with storytelling and lore because uh, when things are too clear cut, uh, that can be a little bit too easy for the the viewer and the and the and the and the watcher, or the listener. So, if I understand you correctly, you think that kind of Palpatine's arc uh, as the like master puppet master of of most of the Republic's kind of ongoing trauma. Uh, was a little too direct and not like nebulous enough. Uh, but my hope is that uh, he he preyed upon an existing situation. Because right. my point is, right. if he had, if he had caused everything, then suddenly the murkiness of the questions that we're raising now would have a very clear answer. Like, oh, well, the Republic was never was never bad at all. Like, it, it would have been great if he hadn't been there. Um, which I think is too easy. Mm-hmm. I think it's much more interesting if the failings and the cracks were already present and then he knew how to manipulate those cracks to create an even worse situation. But if those things hadn't already been present, then he couldn't have had the success he did. And then Palpatine's one of my um, my favorite of the, of the Sith just because he isn't, well, for, for most of the series, he's not cartoonishly evil. He's thinking he's strategizing he's finding ways to distract his enemies and you know you know he's the bad guy so then you just watch him do certain Mm -hmm. things where you're like oh i see how he's playing both sides of the battle here and here's his end result is to weaken x y and z characters or destroy this system or undermine you know the economy of this planet and you're like that's really interesting to watch because you're seeing him behave in an intelligent manner versus I'm going to take out my red lightsaber and butcher everybody, even though, you know, there are moments where he does do that. <laughs> it's, it's a little Hitchcockian in that way, right? Of uh, rather than a bomb under the table, there's a lightsaber under the table and you know, it has to go off. Some <laughs> way, right? Like we know the characters don't, but yeah, <laughs> exactly. We know, uh, Perhaps last question here on Star Wars stuff before we uh, dive a little more into general games writing questions. Uh, I, I like positing this question to like other writer friends. Is is Star Wars sci-fi or fantasy to you? So I think uh, I call it space opera, mm-hmm. which is basically a, another fancy way of saying just fantasy. Uh, you know, it's not it doesn't deal with uh, sort of the pragmatic groundedness like the Expanse does. It's not like pseudo tech like Star Trek. It's much more there is supposed to be clear good clear evil. It's a struggle between these two forces. Uh, we don't dwell too much on the pragmatics of the situation we're just going for high adventure so i think it, it leans much more towards uh towards fantasy although although usually context in the terms of it being a space opera yeah i i think i agree generally with with fantasy because i i could envision like the vehicles and the tools and the weapons that get used i could envision like a different a, a different artist having their hand in it and like the story would still play out the same way and then you know you would think something more like star trek is more sci-fi because it's 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 
uh, more lasers and and spaceships and whatnot. But uh, Star sure. Wars has always felt a little more dirty, uh, at least the original and the uh, uh, brand new trilogy, of course. So uh, as a game designer and a writer, um, I've <laughs> well, first off, I've had a uh, awakening to the beauty of classic RPGs, the top, the top down isometric style RPGs. Um, Divinity Original Sin 2 was like absolutely my game of the year. I think it came out last year or maybe the year before. Uh, and I, I got to ask you before we dive into stuff, how much of Divinity uh, Original Sin 2 were you responsible for? Were you like a head writer, a co writer? Uh, what? Oh, no, I was brought in as a uh, senior writer. They already had a writing team in place. Um, okay. They'd actually hired a bunch of uh, new writers and expanded their writing team for the second game because I, I, they uh, they wanted to build upon the foundation of the first game and having a, a larger writing crew to tackle, like more in-depth companions and some of the NPCs, they, I think Sven saw as an important part for the sequel. Um, so I came in... Um, uh, I was responsible for doing uh, reviews of all the existing companions, uh, uh, doing feedback on those, and they were pretty strong to begin with. So it wasn't like a you know, that wasn't like a huge like a huge ton amount of work. It was more like oh I you know I see what the theme of this character is. Here's some potential cool ways to express themselves. But the writers already had a pretty good grasp on their own companions. Um, <clears throat> I also did uh, multiple story reviews with uh, uh, Sven on the team. Uh, and I also Sven wanted me to do the backstory for the uh, the character Fane, and um, oh cool yeah the actual writer uh, for that uh, he's the one who actually took the dialogue to the the end stage with with Sven I'm like hey I don't I unfortunately don't have time uh, to write a full companion because those end up taking uh, almost half a year per companion if you're lucky uh, but uh, he was like hey well if you can outline sort of like a potential backstory uh, utilizing some of the themes that are present in the game that would be great for us so I did that I broke down uh, sort of the lore aspects uh, and sort of like the I guess moral struggles that were going on in Divinity. I'm like, oh well, if I were to do like a Men on Dead character, here are some of the things that I would focus on. Here's how I draw in some of the lore uh, that already exists in the world, um, and then uh, yeah, and then I did the design for that. Um, and also, I'd say one interesting thing is it's one thing that I try and do with companion design is sometimes there might be difficult things to explain in the lore to the player that it's kind of uh, either irritating or kind of confusing if an NPC just sort of spouts all the information at you or mm -hmm. if you have to read it in a lore book or whatever. But if you can slowly introduce that information with someone who's just walking around with you like a companion, that's almost one of the best ways to communicate a complex lore point. Like, oh, I know what this old nation's all about because my companion, you know, he came from that old nation and, you know, he died there a long time ago. Yeah. So he, he, he throws off some one-liners every once in a while. But like after about 10 of those over the course of five hours, I get a general sense for the, you know, what that nation was all about, why it fell. And it's a pretty, it's, it's an easier on-ramping for the characters versus an exposition lord dumb coming from one person you know for like 15 minutes so yeah it's a it, it's a good technique to use if it's if it's available uh, fane fane is definitely one of my favorite characters and i i had him as a, a companion in my party uh yeah it just hi i'm a million years old and like this is this like 
months we're together is like a blip in my radar but like sure i'll tell you i'll tell you what you need to know uh but like in in a very feign kind of snarky like oh you meat bags are so peculiar kind of way you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was uh, a there's like this fantasy series called uh like uh, a malazan uh I'm sorry, I can't forget the, the exact name of the series, but they they had these uh, undead that have been around for like ten thousand years, and they were just bored of everything. They're like, we've seen yeah. we we've, we've seen it all before, and we're not like the zombies and skeletons that run around and try and like you know eat your brains and slaughter human. They just don't care. They're like they, we've been around forever. Like we've seen this all before. So, so passe <laughs> brains like come on man well i guess i guess there is a little bit of like flesh eating with fane uh because you can you can turn him into an elf and whatnot but, yes uh, <laughs> uh you know as as a game designer and a writer though uh like w- uh, we're several we're at least several years into a a reemergence of classic rpgs uh, divinity disco elysium is going to be like one of the game of the year contenders for a lot of different publications i'm sure and I'm, i just started my way through that and it, it, it's earning it so far uh pillars of eternity of course and and pathfinder kingmaker uh as as someone who really you know you were a, a co-founder of obsidian uh one of the houses that like really laid down a groundwork with Baldur's Gate and Planescape and whatnot. Uh, what does it feel like to see these kinds of storytelling possibilities come back? Oh, it's great. Um, and I think they went away for a while just because publishers didn't see that they would be getting a great return on games like that. Like, I think the interest was always out there, but publishers wanted more of a, well, how can we focus our efforts on doing a role-playing game that will generate a lot more revenue on multiple platforms and isometric games, you know, as one hurdle don't, you know, wouldn't translate well to consoles at that time. And um, so anyway, so those did go away for a while just because publishers just weren't interested in doing those. Um, then, however, crowdsourcing came around, and once uh, I think uh, Brian Fargo at NXIL sort of like paved the way for isometric games, he you know he put the question of like, hey, we've been trying to get Wasteland Two funded for a long period of time. Here's the challenges we've gone through, but now with crowdsourcing, we can ask actually the players directly if they'd be interested in seeing like a top-down RPG set you know in the Wasteland universe. And at that point, it was proved out that there is a market for it. Like it might not be the hugest market, you know, compared to, you know, whatever first person shooter or, you know, Fallout 3, whatever it happens to be. But at the same time, there was enough interest to fund a game like that. And I think that helped proved out the idea that, hey, you know, there's not a a huge market for these games out there. But if you're okay with that level of budget for a game and, you know, that you know, that, that number of sales, then great. And I think that absolutely helped, uh, for, for creating more games like, Hey, well, you know, Divinity Original Sin 2, you know, you can do Pathfinder Kingmaker, you can do, you know, Wasteland 2, all those things now become possibilities because, you know, mostly because of crowdsourcing. So I'm always, I'm always thankful to, to Kickstarter and, uh, people willing to sort of like, uh, blaze the trail to prove out that yes there is a market out there it's not a huge market but hey uh, we can still make games like that and they can still turn a profit yeah i i think that 
you know, as as games like those have reemerged, it, it really has been a very fertile uh, proving ground for mid-tier budget games, right? Uh, uh, games that don't need a billion dollars to be made. Uh, you, you know you're not going to make a billion dollars, so don't spend a billion dollars to make one. And I think it it, it just works. It, you see studios that are happy and uh, financially profitable, and they're just they're shooting for what they know they can get with what they can get. And I think that we need a wider swath of developers and game, you know, franchises like that. That way, you know, we don't become a, a, a like elephant graveyard of triple A, you know, successes and failures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And original sin too did great. So like, I, like I looked at successes of, of, of that and I'm like, you know what? That's a clear cut example. Like if you do like focus your efforts and you just polish the hell out of it and you know, what kind of game you're making like that, that game's been doing fantastically well. So that's even another signpost to other companies in the future that, Hey, maybe isometric games, can do amazingly well if you put like the work and effort behind them and you know original sin 2 is definitely one of them and definitely leads to uh kind of a ooh ah moment uh when larry and announces hey we're doing baldur's gate 3 and everyone's just like oh shit this is, that's amazing wow and you you don't get you don't get that kind of excitement for uh you'll get you would you would get excitement for baldur's gate 3 but not that level without like larry and and uh obsidian you know like really succeeding the last couple of years i think yeah larry larry and having that track record and that reputation like i really definitely lends a lot of weight to that Baldur's gate 3 announcement because you you already know they know what they're doing exactly yeah on a on a more personal level so you departed obsidian some time ago and you now kind of like effectively operate as a freelancer right uh, am, am I on the ball there? Kind of, you're a freelance writer of sorts, contract. Yeah, writer. it's not. It, yeah, it's not really by choice. It's more a matter of just how life circumstances are. Mm-hmm. That my my parents are getting on in their years, so uh, it's I, I can't really be full time at a studio while mm-hmm. that situation exists. So freelancing was kind of the default of what I ended up doing, and it's worked out very well, uh, and I'm really enjoying it. But yeah, that's part of the that's that's largely the reason that i freelance yeah well i i find it interesting uh, considering that so many of my peers and i operate as freelancers for various sites uh, there's behind every successful big site there's a small army of freelancers and uh it, it it's a struggle sometimes to really balance the wishes of three to four masters and i'm wondering if that's also something that i i don't think a lot of burgeoning or student game writers really think about since the goal is usually a full-time gig how how have you navigated the waters of being a freelance game writer without like either drowning yourself in too much work or like accidentally coming up short on your bills because that that's got to be a very tenuous field of work um that's a good question so um I, I live pretty simply and I don't have a lot of expenses. Um, I, I, my hobby is, is, is my work. So it's not like, um, I work to finance like some, anything else. Like I mostly like what, what I do for fun and what I love is actually what sort of generates income for me. But income is almost secondary versus I just enjoy doing the yeah, work. Not going skydiving so anytime it, soon. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so that helps in the sense that I, I try and put my, myself in a position where um, I, I try not to have to worry about the bills because I try and sp- spend very modestly and I don't like have a lot of extravagances. Um, uh, also, yeah, you're right about um, there is the danger on uh, taking too much work. I have generally found that I was able to isolate what all the elements were that were distracting me from work. And, you know, a few examples are um, uh, I, I try not to leave instant messaging apps up. Uh, I try and shut those down during the day. I try and make sure like uh, I limit how often I check and respond to email throughout the day. Um, I do whatever I can to uh, resolve meetings before meetings happen. And what I mean by that is like I, I discovered uh, once I departed Obsidian was one thing that would rob me of energy throughout the day was just the number of production meetings we would mm-hmm. have. And sometimes they weren't absolutely necessary. They were just like, oh, well, we usually have these every week, so let's have it. And the amount of energy that that would sort of like drain uh, would be considerable. But once those went away and if meeting if meeting opportunities come up because I think you you should obviously talk with a team on on some on some you know regular basis but you should also question whether that meeting is absolutely necessary. Generally, if, if there's like a reason a meeting is taking place, as long as you know what's going to be discussed, what the you know the data and the the information they're looking for is, sometimes it's incredibly easy to one provide all that information before a meeting takes place and save five or six people or 10 or 12 people a ton of time by not, you know, waiting two days to have the meeting, but you just give them the information in advance or two, you figure out an update schedule, you know, preferably through a tracking program where it's like, Hey, um, I am going to give you an update on all my tasks, all the blockers that are taking place, any difficulties I'm having, anything I might need help with or something that I'm finishing early and I'm willing to take on, you know, something else to help somebody else out. You can do all that proactively, um, with the right management structure. And I think that's been a huge plus because then I can just take, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 hours, whatever, just to focus on the writing. And once you get in the flow, you can do what seems to others to be like a large amount of work, but it's really not. It's just that you're not getting interrupted during that period and you're controlling your own time to sort of achieve that end result. And that really has made all the difference for my workflow. I'm like, I, it's been great for me. It's kind of that classic conundrum of if you're on your own, you're more uh, you're more responsible for how you spend your time, right? I, I know that all too well as a freelancer, and uh, I know Josie, uh, who now works for EA, he he has meetings all the time. Uh, sometimes so early with like you know, EA Europe teams that he has to like have them at 6 a.m. And it's been a struggle for both of us kind of like readjusting, I think. But uh, you you just have to learn to like really readjust how you approach work on a day-to-day basis when you know that like at nine or 10 o'clock, I'm going to have this big energy suck. Uh, So what am I going to do before? And how am I going to like make sure I can keep going afterwards, right? 
Yeah, and then also you have to keep in like exactly what you're saying with the uh, like uh, if you're meeting with teams in Europe, for example, that's also another challenge which uh, you you have to be aware of like time schedules throughout the world. Because I like work with developers like you know in Spain, like uh, in Europe, you know in Russia and Poland, and like you have to be aware of like when they begin work and when it's helpful for them to get information, and like uh, you might want to stay up a little bit later to make sure you're you're there when the morning when the quote unquote morning emails for mm-hmm. them come in. So. You yeah, that's another thing, to, another thing to keep in mind as well. You know, and it's funny you talk a little bit about the uh, kind of just collaborative process about that, of course, because uh, game game design of any stripe is always almost incre- almost always incredibly collaborative. Uh, a friend of mine, she works for uh, a large games company as like a narrative designer. At least that's like that's her official games title. Uh, she recently said something like a big, big portion of her job involved bouncing between game design or even like combat design roles, not just world building or script writing. Uh, You began your career as a designer, of course, merged into a heavy role as a writer. Uh, But have you had to keep your basic game design chops sharp? Uh, What elements of game design would you tell someone perhaps getting into the industry to focus on in tandem with their writing? Well, wow, that's a, that's another good question. Um, so as a game designer, uh, it, it's always helpful to speak the language of other departments. So it's not necessarily uh, even keeping uh, just your game design skills sharp, but you have to be able to communicate things to animation, to audio, uh, and also recognize that you may need to take a step back from writing and go, I need to take this page of lore or this page of a plot line and figure out a way that audio or art or animation could communicate that entire page without me mm-hmm. saying a word. Like, are there any, you know, props and fallout, for example, that if I requested them and then asked a, uh, an area designer or environment artist to prop out a certain area. So it looked like, you know, here's a bad, a simple example. Hey, like a huge, you know, gunfight between these two groups broke out in this area, but there's no NPCs to explain it. I just have to be able to see it walking in and then like they'll prop it out. So when a player pops in there for five seconds, they're like, Oh, these two factions had a gun battle through here. And it's not really clear who exactly won, but it looks like they were, you know, fighting over X item or something deeper in the complex or whatever. And then, no NPC really has to tell you that it's more like, well, how can audio and art and other, and other disciplines help you tell the story? So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, uh, so your friend, your friend is lucky in the sense that, you know, if they can contribute to combat design or at least be involved in those discussions, even if they're not guiding them, that, that's, that's good because a lot of combat barks and the encounter, composition can also really help tell a story as well for a certain area. And ideally you're as a writer, you're, you're able to at least contribute Mm -hmm. to that or suggest ideas for it. For me, it's mostly uh, being aware of area design because you want to be able to, to pace the story in discrete chunks as a player goes through a, you know, a dungeon or a complex or a bunker. And um, I studied architecture for uh, uh, two years and, being able to fall back on those skills for like being able to quickly draft out a level, a level plan for like, Hey, well, here's, you know, comp 
plot part one of complex and here's the isometric view for this and here's how we sh it might be a good idea to place the doors and here's how we would place the secret or hidden doors so you know players wouldn't immediately see those or uh, you know whatever it happens to be being able to show that to an environment artist or a level designer and, and then they could take that and then build a level accordingly, you know, with, you know, with their own expertise, but they, at least they understand where you're coming from. You're like, they're like, Oh, I see what you're trying to do with this, but I would probably change in the following ways, but being able to speak the language either visually or technically is definitely a huge help for a writer. And it also helps you get listened to more because sometimes writers get sidelined as being, Oh, well, he's just the yeah. word guy. He has no idea. You know, the, <laughs> he can't possibly understand this the guy just puts words on pages. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, it, be, it helps being able to speak the language. I, I got to ask, were you a, were you a theater kid at all? I was not. I had a number no? of friends that were, but uh, I, I was not. I, it's just funny the way you kind of describe all the, you know, how, how do I tell this story perhaps without words, of course, the, the, the gun fight between two factions kind of set up. Uh, it just all reminds me, I, I did a fair share of like high school theater, just, you know, small acting roles. And then when I moved to college for journalism, I actually ended up living with a bunch of theater kids and they weren't, they weren't actors. They were actually like almost all of them were set design and prop design and just all the little parts that you don't you take for granted, of course, but like someone had to build that asset or that uh, backdrop or that secret door or something like that. And uh, it, it gave me a little bit of an appreciation for, yeah, how much of a story goes into uh, a single prop like, you know, is a is a penniless drifter going to be using a shiny brand new like you know bfg from doom no he's going <laughs> to be using a, a six shot with like dirt in its hinges and everything you know uh, I, I don't know if you thought about like how close that part of the job like relates to theater like set design but i, I just thought that was interesting well i will say working with uh, on fallout new vegas uh, and the dlcs it the amount of storytelling you could do by requesting a certain a certain type of prop uh, definitely helped, especially when your uh, when your voice acting budget was like, hey, well, like you, these characters can only speak X number of lines. So immediately that makes you start thinking of other ways to tell the story. And the amount of stories you can tell quite simply with number one, a prop bloodstain, two skeleton, three gun. Skeletons are a classic. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then uh, not to say, to say nothing of all the inventory items that you could pick up, which also tell stories if you place them in certain ways. But even just those three simple props allow you to tell a huge bunch of stories just in terms of how you're able to place them. Well, you probably can't talk too heavily about it, but considering Baldur's Gate 3 is arguably like the biggest D&D video game we'll have in some years, because it really it seems like the last five or eight years have focused on like remakes or enhanced editions of Baldur's Gate or Icewind Dale. I got to ask like what you think is uh, perhaps so special about the D&D fantasy universe uh, aside from the games like Historical Tabletop Legacy, what makes that a really compelling universe to tell stories in? Unfortunately, I, th I think a big part of it is just the foundation that Tabletop Legacy made. Like it, it's such a common household term. It's kind of mm -hmm. kind of got like the largest the largest install base for the want of a better term. But people 
know what D&D is. Like, you know, sometimes like trying to explain what Pathfinder is requires a little bit more explanation. You know, even even though I, you know, I love the Pathfinder universe. and I um, do too, yeah. Yeah, but, but D&D is like something that's much more in the uh, the common language. So that that's that's one thing. But in terms of the universes, uh, so there's a lot of different franchises for D&D. Uh, and I think... But it, it does go back to if you want sort of the core nostalgic high fantasy experience, the the sort of classic fantasy experience, D&D is kind of known for providing that. And I think um, people do want those stories of high adventure, you know, and fantasy and uh, D&D sort of hits all the right notes for that. Like in, And it's, a, it's also a pretty accessible system like it's pretty easy to find the character archetype you want and get to playing uh, relatively quickly without um, a lot of undue explanation or uh, mm-hmm. uh, that, that you might find in, in other franchises and licenses. And uh, like like you, I'm pretty excited to see what uh, Larian's going to do with Baldur's Gate 3. Like, uh, I was not expecting that announcement. And then I saw no. it. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be awesome. I have been waiting for Baldur's Gate 3 for a long time such a such a gruesome announcement too with the the illithid transformation oh Oh, god oh man (laughs) but uh you know i I personally like i'm a huge legend of dritz fan the the dark elf um and you know caddy brie and regis and uh wolfgar the barbarian uh is there is there a like unexplored part of the DD lore that you would really like to see whether it's by your hand or someone else's that you would like to see explored in a game one day um, for D&D, there's, yeah, there's a lot of corners for uh, some well-established franchises and uh, also other campaign worlds that I would love to dig into more. Like I never I never thought that uh, that Dark Sun really got enough of a a time in the digital space. There were, I think, uh, like two SSI games in the distant past, but I really liked the post-apocalyptic fantasy feel of that world. That's sort of like married two genres that I like very closely together, which was awesome. So I'd love if there was a chance to get back to that. Um, I think Ravenloft's pretty interesting. Um, uh, Yeah, I think there's a a large number of areas to go to uh, across the D&D space. I, I think we, we were lucky uh, back at Obsidian when I was working with uh, George Zeitz and uh, uh, Kevin Saunders. We, we I had the opportunity to work with them on uh, a Neverwinter Nights 2 expansion called Mass the Betrayer. And part of the goals that George had with that game was, hey, I think from a storytelling standpoint, I'd really like to go to a different part of the Forgotten Realms that is not the Sword Coast and then see what stories we can explore there. And that was that was a nice breath of fresh air because sometimes when you get stuck in, you know, too much of one section of D&D, it feels like you're just doing the same story over and over. But George was really instrumental in moving us to a cool new location. We're like, oh, now we can stretch our narrative legs a bit more and explore aspects of the Forgotten Realms, like, uh, you know, Pantheon and their sort of religious beliefs in a way that that location sort of lent itself to. And I, I, I'm, I'm forever thankful to him for that because it was, it was a wonderful experience. Well, I am forever thankful for you coming on the 1099 and uh, giving me a, a really great window into just Star Wars and fantasy and role-playing games, because as much as it's been a resurgence just in the industry of them, uh, it's also been a really 
kind of interesting few years for me uh, diving into stuff like Divinity and Pillars. And uh, I'm very excited for Baldur's Gate 3, of course. And I even uh, picked up uh, the Baldur's Gate like remasters or whatever they did during the last Steam oh, sales. Oh, cool. Cover. Great. I'm very excited to dive into those too. And uh, yeah. Folks, uh, if you are interested in more talks with developers or games media writers, uh, next week we're actually going to have Elise Favis from Washington Post on. She's going to be talking about Launcher, their brand new gaming media vertical, and kind of what their mission is over there. You might recognize that from uh, Gene Park, who was on a couple months back to talk about Evangelion. And yeah, you can find a new episode of the 1099 every Monday here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.